Most gracious God and Father, we pray that out of the riches of your grace in Jesus Christ, in whom you have hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that you would provide for each of us the bread and drink that we need for our spirits and for our lives. We thank you that in your Word we are able to gaze upon the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that as we do so, you are gradually transforming us into His likeness from one degree of glory to another. And we pray that as we come into your Word and under the ministry of your Holy Spirit, that this room of worship, this temple of praise, may also become the workbench of your Spirit as He works upon us by your Word to change us, to lift us, who are discouraged that we may be sweetened in spirit, those who are perplexed that we may have light in our darkness, that those of us who are over-exalted may be humbled by your presence, and that all of us may be brought in fresh and needful ways to the feet of our Savior Jesus Christ, to trust Him afresh, to marvel at His grace and power, to yield ourselves to His Word and to His kingdom. So come to us, Lord, as we come near the end of the Lord's day, and in every way pour out Your blessing upon us. We ask this in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. Please be seated. As you may be thinking about the service next Sunday night, as I said this morning, there are invitation cards that have been printed. I believe that you will find these both in the narthex and also in the atrium of Jackson Hall. Uh, they're very attractive pictures taken by my colleague Duff James, and uh, you'll enjoy giving them away. And uh, once you've given them all away and there are none left, then uh, once you've waited to the end, you may keep one for yourself and enjoy looking at this room as it is prepared each year for Christmas. Now, we turn again this evening to Paul's letter to the Romans. We are towards the end of Romans chapter 8, and as we have done on a few occasions, not many, to be honest, but on a few occasions when we've reached certain points in Romans, we've camped down for a little while on a passage, and we are doing this in these great closing verses of Romans chapter 8. Tonight, we are particularly going to look at verses 33 and 34, but let's read in from verse 31 again and enjoy this marvelous paean of praise that issues from the apostles' lips at the end of Romans chapter 8. So, let us hear God's Word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, these are surely among the most magnificent words that are to be found anywhere in the Scriptures, certainly among the most magnificent words that were ever uttered by the Apostle Paul. And one of the things that we have been noticing is that while there is such a great shout of triumph in these words, the Apostle Paul is not turning a blind eye to the difficulties and trials of the Christian life. Indeed, at this point in the passage, he addresses himself with almost a staccato-like series of questions, as though he is posing questions to the entire universe, daring the entire universe to stand against the purposes of God who can separate us from the love of Christ, who can condemn us, who can bring accusation against us. Again and again, he asks these questions, which, as we've already noticed, all begin with the personal interrogative pronoun, who. And we can be so caught up in this and be so familiar with this passage of Scripture that we may lose sight of the fact that the Apostle Paul is virtually quoting from the prophecy of Isaiah. You will probably know that as Isaiah looks from chapter 40 forwards to God's people being in exile in Babylon, and he sees Cyrus, the Persian king, coming to deliver them under the hand of God, he sees the need for a greater Messiah and a greater Savior than the political power of Cyrus. And so, there begins to emerge in that second half of the prophecy of Isaiah, a mysterious figure known as the servant of the Lord. He appears in at least four passages in particular in chapter 42, 49, 50, and the most famous from the end of chapter 52 into chapter 53, the suffering servant. And amazingly, in chapter 50, the second of these songs of the servant, the servant, who is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, is faced with the very same issues that the Apostle Paul speaks about here. He speaks about giving his back to those who strike and his cheeks to those who pull out the beard. 
He says that he did not hide his face from disgrace and spitting, words that come quite literally true, as you'll remember, in the gospel narrative about our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, in the face of all this opposition, but he says, the Lord helps me, and I have not been disgraced. He who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? And then, in a marvelous conclusion to this, Isaiah speaks these marvelous words that those who walk in the darkness and have no light may trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon His, that is, the servant's God. And so, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's actually teaching us here how to use our Bibles. He is saying, I find myself in this situation, oppressed on every hand, all these pressures upon me, these accusations, these attempts to condemn me, those powerful elements of this world that might seem to be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But thanks be to God, he says, because I am in Christ Jesus, I can say precisely the same things to everything that might oppose me and seek to destroy my faith, that might seek to separate me from the love of God. And therefore, even although I walk in darkness and have no light, I will trust in my God. And so you see him looking round the universe and asking these questions, who at the end of the day can be opposed to me if God is for me? Who at the end of the day can bring any accusation against me? Who can possibly condemn me? Who can ever separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? And this is the apex of that grand assurance that he's been teaching us from the beginning of chapter 5, the gospel of Jesus Christ brings to us. This is the assurance of salvation that is the birthright and the inheritance of every Christian believer. It is our Father's good pleasure that we should feel and understand these things and be able to echo them in our own lives, whatever the pressures on our lives may be, because having been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, as Paul had said at the beginning of chapter 5, we rejoice in our certain hope of the glory of God. Now, last time we saw how marvelously Paul is teaching us that there is no opposition that can possibly stand against the believer on this basis, that if God has given His Son to the cross for us, 
He will spare nothing to keep us for His glory. But now you notice Paul comes to two questions. They're obviously related to one another, if slightly different from one another, and they too, interestingly, begin with the pronoun, the interrogative pronoun, who. Not only if God is for us, who can be against us, but verse 33, who shall bring any charge, any accusation against God's elect? And in verse 34, again, who is to condemn us? So, there are two things here. There is accusation and there is condemnation. There is an accusation that Paul says cannot stick, and there is a condemnation that Paul says cannot stand. What about this accusation that he says cannot stick? There is no accusation that can stick against God's elect. Who shall bring any charge, any accusation? What is the charge? As the officers of the law take you to the police station, that's the question your lawyer will ask. What is the charge against my client? What is the accusation? Will that accusation stick? Now, here's one of these places where the Apostle Paul shows himself to be a superlative pastor and a great counselor because after all, he could have finished with the first question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, if God has given His own Son for us, there is absolutely nothing that can be possibly against us. So, friends, let's move on to Romans chapter 9. That's everything. That is absolutely everything. But the Apostle Paul understands how possible it is for us as Christian believers to hear everything but not be able to apply it to particular things in our lives. And that's his great skill as a counselor and pastor, to take the great general principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then say, now let's work this out in detail, right down into the details of our Christian lives. Because, you see, he understands that Christian believers do experience accusation, and Christian believers do experience condemnation. And so, you see what he, I hope you see what he's doing. He's bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear upon the particulars of Christian believers' experience. That's what we all need to learn to do. This is not, this is not something to do with professionalism. This has got to do with encouraging one another and helping one another. We all need… This is not for ministers or those who went to theological seminary. I, you may learn this in theological seminary. I certainly didn't learn this in theological seminary. I, alas, learned very little in theological seminary, and it wasn't all my fault. 
But this is not something that you pick up because you've got letters of theology after your name, but because you've learned to use the Scriptures. And I want you to see what Paul is doing. He is saying, now we've taken hold of this amazing truth that if the Heavenly Father has delivered over His Son to the cross, to the condemnation and judgment of the cross for our sins and for our salvation, then of course our salvation is guaranteed. But he knows very well that the Christian can grasp that and find him or self still in great difficulties. And he's wanting to address these great difficulties. Who can bring any charge against God's elect. They say, don't they, that some, you know, when you look up into the night sky, I doubt you can see it tonight, but when you look up into the night sky, you may be able to see stars that no longer exist. Certainly you can do that through one of these amazing telescopes. They will tell you that it takes so long for the light to come from that star that you see the light, but the star died some time ago. Now, that's exactly what happens in the Christian's heart. And I would be amazed if there are are many of us who have never experienced this. We know that 2,000 years ago, our Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. We know that He shed His precious blood for the forgiveness of our sins, and our debt was canceled in Jesus Christ. It is dead and gone. And yet, although we have faith in Jesus Christ, it sometimes seems as though the light from that dead and gone burden of our guilt and sin that He bore on the cross of Calvary, even although we believe in Him, that light still seems to shine into our lives, and we often find voices that accuse us. And actually, Paul was speaking about that in chapter 7, wasn't he? He was speaking about how the voice of the law can accuse him. And so he needed to run again to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, thanks be to God that although God's law still accuses me of sin because I remain a sinner as a Christian, although God's law still accuses me of sin, I can go to Jesus Christ and say, oh, Jesus Christ, you deliver me from all of this guilt. And sometimes it's true, too, that happens in your own conscience, doesn't it? Do you remember how the apostle John who, if I remember rightly, doesn't use the language of conscience, and I'm not sure I'm right about this, but I I suspect I'm right about this. I need to look this up. I don't think that the Old Testament has has a word for conscience because it speaks about the heart. So, the Hebrew spoke about the heart, and the Gentile world spoke about the conscience. That's why the Apostle John says in his first letter, what are you going to do when your heart condemns you? Christian, what are you going to do? It's a good question. And you remember how he answers. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, well, you say my heart's not all that bad. 
You'll never get anywhere as long as you're saying to your conscience, I'm not as bad as that, because your conscience will simply answer back, I know you too well. You're actually far worse than that. No, he says, if our consciences condemn us as Christian believers, his language, if our hearts condemn us, he says, brothers and sisters, God is greater than our hearts. That doesn't just mean God is bigger than our hearts. That means God has done something far bigger, far louder than the voice of my conscience. That means that God in His grace in Jesus Christ and through His shed blood is able to silence the cries of my conscience that keep saying to me, you are still a failure. You are still guilty. Now, dear ones, this is tremendously relevant in our society where success has become everything, and where so many Christians therefore therefore hide this or disguise this or try to divert this. No, the only way we can deal with this is to drown this voice of conscience in the assurance that in Jesus Christ, God has forgiven us all of our sins, and therefore these accusations cannot stick. Now, all of that's true. All of that is true. But to say that the law accuses us and to say that my conscience continues to accuse us would answer the question, what will bring any charge against God's elect? And that's not the question Paul is asking. The question Paul is asking is not, what can bring a charge against me? What can accuse me? Yes, your conscience can do it. Yes, the law of God can do it but he is asking for a name. And I have no doubt whatsoever, I was stunned this afternoon, I happened to look at one of the very oldest commentaries on the letter to the Romans that has ever been written way back from the very earliest centuries of the Christian church. I opened it, and there the commentator said, I believe that he is speaking here about Satan. And I thought to myself, somebody else believes that too. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Satan trades in guilt. And you and I need to know this for the sheer stability of our Christian lives. Let me illustrate that to you from the most obvious passage in Scripture. Some of you are thinking about this already. There are several passages I'd like to refer to, uh, too many, but just let me focus on this one. Zechariah chapter 3. You know this passage, I hope, how Zechariah is given this vision of Joshua, who is the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, Satan who is the accuser. Do you remember how he's described as that in Revelation chapter 12? The accuser of the brethren who accuses them day and night, Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Now listen, 
Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. It's a picture of sin, failure. And so, from one point of view, Satan is quite right to accuse him. He's saying to God in the hearing of Joshua, the high priest, look at him. Look at these filthy garments he's wearing. How can he possibly be your servant? Impossible. And then we get this marvelous picture. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now, you need to see yourself right into that picture. When Satan comes to accuse you, as he often does, as he sticks I don't know what you call it around here, but when he sticks a poker into the dying embers of the sin in your heart and causes them to inflame so that your mind may even be filled with all kinds of consciousness of your sin and of your need, and then he comes round right into the front of your face and he says, doesn't he? What's this I see? in your private life? What's this I see in your mind? What's this I see going on in your heart? These accusations are real. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you are probably plagued with this kinds of thing. And you've, you don't know who to go to, where to turn. You daren't tell anybody about this kind of thing. That's because Satan is a blackmailer, and that's the kind of thing blackmailers do. They say, let's keep this a secret, and nobody will know. That's part of his hellish subtlety in the lives of Christian believers. And Paul is saying in this great passage, who can bring any charge against God's elect? What's his answer? His answer is... Well, what is his answer? Well, we were singing about it, weren't we? Bow down beneath the load of sin by Satan sorely pressed. Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side. That's right out of Zechariah chapter 3. That sheltered near thy side, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him, what am I going to tell him? What are you going to tell him when all hell is inflamed in your mind like this? Are you going to tell him that you've tried to live a decent Christian life, that you've tried to serve Christ's church, that there are people who have been converted through your testimony, that people admire you and respect you, None of these things, all of those things are like David wearing Saul's armor. They don't fit in the battle against this Goliath, Philistine, who comes to destroy the Christian's enjoyment of Jesus Christ. No, says Newton. It is Newton, isn't it? 
I may my fierce accuser face and tell him Christ has died. And that's what the apostle is saying here. Who can bring any charge against God's elect when God Himself has justified us? If we could only grasp this policy, if you'd only, if you'd only think through the gospel and apply it to your own life, you would see that none of these flaming darts of the devil can ever destroy you because the one against whom you have sinned and do sin is the very one who in His amazing mercy has justified you in Jesus Christ. There's a futility to what Satan does, as there is often a futility to the last desperate efforts of a defeated foe. Paul is saying, as John Newton, that wise counselor, is saying in the hymn we were singing, the answer is not inside you. The answer is not to be found in the record of your Christian fruitfulness or usefulness. Nothing you have accomplished is strong enough armor against this fiery dart of the devil, but there is a shield of faith that will be able to protect you. And you say, but my God has given His Son to the cross to justify me. I couldn't be more justified than that because He has given me the very righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, and He recognizes that I'm clothed in that righteousness. As Count von Zinzendorf has taught us also to sing, at least once he was translated, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress midst flaming worlds. Think of it. In the middle of hell, there is an asbestos dress that you are able to wear Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved from these I am, from sin and fear and guilt and shame. You feel yourself to be fully absolved. You can't feel that in yourself. So long as you look to yourself, these arrows will stick, and the accusations will stick. But Paul is saying there is a place to go, a place to look to the justifying mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And so related to that, no accusation can stick, and then in the next verse, 34, no condemnation can stand who can condemn us? Now, again, just try and, try and feel your way into the way Paul's thinking. Isn't that enough for you? Isn't, you know, let's pronounce the benediction and go home. We've got all that. That's everything, and it is everything. 
But Paul realizes, I, 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 I've no reason to believe he ever used this expression. Paul realized so many of us who are Christian believers suffer from what I call the yes buttery syndrome. Don't we? Yes, I know that's true, but I call that the yes buttery syndrome. I don't know why, but I call it the yes buttery syndrome. And most of us are full of that kind of thing, plagued by it. Yes, I know that's true, and I know that's true of many people, but I am an exception. There is something very unusual and particular about my situation. I know that there is no accusation that can stand. That's all. There's nothing new. Show me something new. There's nothing new about that. And yet at the same time, there is a sense of condemnation in your heart. How would that emerge? It would emerge, for example, that in the middle of the worship service tonight, you didn't really feel free to praise the Lord because there were things you felt guilty about. Or when you meet somebody who's not a Christian on Tuesday afternoon, you're, you're slow to speak about the joy of the forgiveness of sins because you know deep down in, in your heart that, that not only have you been accused, but you feel yourself to be condemned. And it may be because for all the struggles of your Christian life, there is something in your past that keeps popping up that plagues you to death spiritually. And you feel, you look around now you can only see externally, but you look around and you say, I would give worlds to, to be that kind of Christian, but I can never be that kind of Christian because there is this that constantly seeks to condemn me. And I condemn myself. It's an interesting thing, you know, that before we became Christians, Satan tried to hide our sinfulness from us and say it didn't matter. And after we became Christians, he tries to expose our sinfulness to us and tell us it's the most important thing in the world. And so we can limp along as Christians feeling that we are condemned. And you see, that's exactly when with Paul, we need to ask the question in the specific form he asks it. Who is this? Who is condemning me? And we must learn as Christian believers not to confuse our own consciousness that we are not yet perfect with the voice of Satan insisting that we are condemned now, this may not be the experience of all of us. I pray, God, it's not the experience of all of us. But it's not such an unusual experience as you might think for Christian people to feel there is an insistent finger pointing at them and telling them that they are condemned because of a particular past sin or because of present sin and failure, and they don't know that what they land as children, there's a wicked spirit watching round you still.
Now, this is another thing you're not likely to learn in theological seminary. That's why I'm quite convinced Paul asked these questions, who? Now, I need to think this through. Who is it who is seeking to condemn me? That's actually what the whole Old Testament book of Job is about, actually, isn't it? I mean, we, we often say Job, it's a book about suffering. It's not, it's not at the end of the day a book about suffering. Suffering is, is simply the, the, the central element in the drama. But if you read the first two chapters of the book of Job, you realize it's a book about spiritual warfare, and it's a book telling us what Satan intends to do, and in some amazing mystery of God's providence, is allowed to do to afflict this man. And then for comforters who come to him and say to him, now your problem, Job, is your sin. If you will just admit that you've sinned, everything will return to normal. And he keeps arguing with them and saying, I know you've got a formula. Specific sin leads to specific judgment. This is specific judgment. Therefore, you must have sinned a specific sin. And he's saying, before God, I recognize I am a sinner, but this has not come upon me because of some specific sin. And they keep pressing and pressing and pressing. Even his wife says, just give up. You're a condemned man. And there are one or two moments in the book of Job. We don't have time to read them this evening. There are one or two moments in the book of Job when Job describes the way in which he feels God is battering him to pieces because his friends think he has sinned. And if you read through the book of Job, knowing what's happened in the first two chapters— if you saw this in a theater, if we had the book of Job played out here, and somebody had come onto the stage right at the beginning, and we had, we had seen what the real meaning of Job's terrible experience was, there are moments in the book when Job is describing the one who seems to be battering him to death and saying to God, God, why are you doing this to me? And you would be standing up there in the gallery. You would be so caught up in this. It is such powerful drama. You would be shouting out from the gallery, Job, it's not God. It's Satan who's doing this thing. It's Satan who is crushing you. And there's one point in Job chapter 9, round about verse 27 or thereabouts, where suddenly he cries out almost in a moment of amazing insight, if it's not you, then who is it? That's the question you and I need to learn to ask. You've read Pilgrim's Progress, haven't you? You remember how Christian, as he makes his pilgrimage through the valley, says this. This is Bunyan's description. It's actually a self-description. In his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, John Bunyan tells us he experienced what I'm about to read to you while he was preaching. While he was preaching, one thing I would not slip. 
I took notice that now poor Christian was so confounded that he did not know his own voice. And thus I perceived that just when he was come over against the mouth of the burning pit, one of the wicked ones got behind him and stepped up softly to him. Now listen very carefully to this. There is almost bound to be somebody in this room for whom this is going to be a startling personal illumination. One of the wicked ones got up behind him, stepped up softly to him, and whisperingly suggested many grievous blasphemies to him, which he verily thought had proceeded from his own mind. I don't know how many times I've sat people down who have told me what's going on in their life, and I've turned to, this is page 57 in my paperback edition of Pilgrim's Progress, and I've read this to them, and they've said, I didn't know anyone else in the world had ever gone through what I'm going through. The conflagration of the fiery darts of the devil. What am I going to say when Satan condemns me? Now, here's Paul's answer. And once I've read the answer, we are done. We may come back to this. Who is to condemn? Now, you see what he's doing. He is saying, this, is, this can be such a massive thing in the experience of the Christian believer. I need to bring to bear upon it the massive grace of the gospel. And so, he spells it out, who is to condemn? Christ has died. So, all my condemnation has fallen upon the Lord Jesus Christ. More than that, he says, Christ was raised. Why is that important? Because the resurrection of Jesus is the great proof positive that God has accepted His sacrifice for my sins. So, as I face the fierce accuser and feel myself to be condemned, I'm able to say, but Jesus has borne my condemnation, and His resurrection means that His Father has accepted His sacrifice on my behalf. And then he says, marvel of marvels, Jesus is at the right hand of God. What's he doing at the right hand of God? Well, says the letter to the Hebrews, he's sitting down because he's finished his work. In distinction from all the Old Testament priests who made their sacrifices in the hope that the condemnation for their sin might be removed, but then the next day came back to make more sacrifices and more sacrifices so that they could never sit down, repeating their sacrifices again and again and again. But Jesus Christ, by His one and all-sufficient sacrifice for all of His people made once for all upon the cross, now ascended to the right hand of His Father, has sat down. All His work is ended. Joyfully we sing, Jesus has ascended. Glory to our King. He's finished the work of forgiving my sins. And even more, says Paul, yes, He's sitting there, but He's not doing nothing. He is at the right hand of God who indeed is 
interceding for us. He is interceding for us. We are just poor Peters. Before the cock crows three times, Peter, you will betray me. No, I'll never betray you. Oh, God, I've betrayed him. I've betrayed him. I'm lost. And you imagine Satan coming in to Simon Peter and saying, condemned, condemned, condemned. But then we're told that Peter remembered the word of the Lord. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you are restored, begin to minister to, to strengthen the brethren. It's an all-sufficient salvation. He died to take my condemnation. He rose for my justification. He's at the right hand of God. He's finished His work. He's making intercession for me. That's why we enjoy singing so much, isn't it? From before the throne of God above, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Where do I look? Upward I look and see Him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my guilty soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him pardon me. Or in the much older words of Augustus Montague, top lady, my name from the palms of his hands eternity will not erase. Inscribed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given more happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? There is one who does, but the charges cannot stick if we are in Christ who will condemn us. There is one who seeks to do, but Christ has borne our condemnation, been raised for our justification, sits at the Father's right hand, all His work to pardon us finished. And our dear Lord Jesus Christ intercedes for us, that our faith will not fail. Oh, truly, more happy. They are more happy. It's a lovely thing to think about, isn't it? That they are far happier than we are, but they are not more secure in Christ. Oh, our Heavenly Father, teach us, we pray, the grace and power 
of the gospel, that we may be able to live in this apostolic fashion and know that neither accusation nor condemnation can ever destroy our salvation in Jesus Christ. And this we pray with thankfulness to Him for all He is to us. In Jesus' name, amen.